Good day to you. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the beautiful inland Pacific Northwest of America. Today's 24th of July and the year is 2020. And so I'm going to get started right away. Now, recall the last time we, we met, I was organizing around the theme of the discussion of human senescence, that is aging cellular aging. And we spent the first two lectures giving you a background on the morphological characteristics of aging and also some of the very fundamental extremes we might encounter in different living organisms. And uh, what I did not bring up is unicellular organisms. Now, when I talk about differentiated multicellular organisms, they go through developmental patterns like plants and animals. I think they're distinct because when you simply talk about cell division, like with unicellular organisms like bacteria or even some fungi, most fungi, um, it's not the same issue because there you're simply talking about uh, mitotic division. So the genome is essentially retained every time a division occurs. There are developmental patterns that lead to gametogenesis. Now, sometimes there is sporulation, of course. That's a different phenomenon. It is a reproductive one. But it's not a developmental sequence that delivers a specific um, gamete generation that then ultimately has to, in sexual reproducing organisms, go through a syngamy between two different gametes, two heterogametes, forming then an embryo. And then that embryo going through developmental stages in utero, for example, in animals, and then ultimately parturition, and then all the years after parturition till death, that is a lifespan of the person once they're um, outside the womb, that is a totally different issue. And that's what I'm speaking about, that there is a developmental program there. There's an aging process. Uh, organs that come from tissues that come from cells terminally differentiate, and that terminal differentiation turns into an organ like a liver or kidneys, or lungs or uh, neurons in the brain. And there's some reproductive capability in those tissues. For example, in um, muscle cells and myocytes there is, and skeletal muscle, and even somewhat in cardiac and smooth muscle. But the point is that uh, except for some replenishment of damaged cells and a regeneration of that tissue, which can occur in some tissue beds, primarily a terminal differentiation of cells occurs and except for some repair, um, and of course, an immune surveillance response and the removal of toxic compounds like reactive oxygen, uh, that system becomes uh, one that goes through then an, uh, an ultimate sequence towards senescence. And that's particularly after reproductive uh, capability has arisen. And so that's what we're talking about, the aging process. And that ultimately leads in the termination of that life. And the, then I started, so I gave you that background. I'm sorry I'm spending so much time doing it now, but it's been about a week since we started this arc on aging, right? And remember why we're doing aging. I'm trying to get us where we are at a biochemical and physiological foundation of how you can understand the way that disease works in an aging organism. And of course, we're particularly talking about the organism of human and talking about as the human ages beyond puberty and even beyond middle age towards the 
shall we call them, the autumnal years, where um, the faculties of the, of the individual that they once had when they were 25 are clearly diminished. And those are usually uh, at the level of um, muscular capability, tonicity, but also in the later stages of life, one of the last things, one of the most sturdy um, uh, mechanisms in the human body is the human mind. But then the mind tends to start to deteriorate as well. And ultimately, the human gets into very old age, a sedentary existence. And uh, then there's a, there's a death, usually somewhere after about 79 to 85 years, uh, depending on if you're a male or a female in the West. And so I want us to talk about this because I want you to understand what happens when you get an etiologic agent like a disease-causing um, substance or system. And I, I don't want to say it is a living system because viruses aren't living and neither are prions and autoimmune diseases occur all the time. And those aren't caused by a specific etiological living free agent. So I want to make sure the disease is not just confined to infectious or even non-infectious diseases that could be limited to some kind of microorganism. So then I told you uh, last time that a good way to understand the process of termination of a living system, the senescence unto death, if you will, um, is to understand the other side of that uh, double-struck coin. And that is what happens when cells immortalize. And that's what tumors are. Tumorization, oncogenesis, is taking cells that have a mutation, one, two, three, sometimes more, that allow those cells to autonomously replicate and sometimes also differentiate partially and metastasize and then move throughout the body, carrying with them a cellular mass that's able to invade, uh, set up court inside another tissue system, and then progress with uh, a tumor. And so that system where there is rampant cell division, there's rapid growth, and there is a lack of terminal differentiation and also a lack of a uh, final timestamp on those cells, like when they will die, uh, is what leads to cancer. And cancer, of course, is the leading cause of death. So if you understand that cancer is the other side of a terminal differentiation and also terminal designation of a living system, you can see why I would want to carry out the compare and contrast. It's what I've often done when I teach biochemistry or pathophysiology or pharmacy or any of the other courses I've been um, asked to create and deliver over my years as a professor, I try to give a counterbalance of what, if it exists in nature, so that we can look at that counterbalance and understand what's going on biochemically and physiologically, genetically, and then look at what happens in the normal system where you do get terminal differentiation uh, yet you also get the vagaries of disease. And so that allows you to discuss the immune system and all the biochemistry within that, enveloped in that. So we're talking about intermediary metabolism. I told you intermediary, intermediary metabolism is wound up in cancer. I told you about re recent progress in studying a couple of enzymes in the TCA cycle, also known as the citric acid cycle, also known as the Krebs cycle, named after Krebs who was one of the first people to uh, really put together the cycle. It's not really a cycle. It's an anaplerotic system. And if you don't know what that means, don't worry. I will detail that later when we talk about 
um, the generic understanding of pathways, which I, I'm going to give a lecture on, I think, probably uh, in August. All right. So I told you that isocitrate dehydrogenase, pyruvate kinase muscle form 2, or PKM2, the enzyme fumarase, and succinate dehydrogenase. These are all enzymes associated with glucose metabolism, either glycolysis with pyruvate kinase or the other three enzymes, uh, isocitrate dehydrogenase, fumarase, and suck dehydrogenase. Those are all TCA cycle enzymes. I told you there were mutations. I also told you about the epoxy-inducible factor and that that had something to do with the oncogenicity of the succinate dehydrogenase and fumarase mutations. I told you that hypoxic stress is a common phenomenon in tumor tissues that become hypoxic. That means a lack of molecular oxygen. I told you that under normal conditions, there's a protein called HIF-1-alpha. That's epoxy-inducible factor 1-alpha. Uh, and normally, that protein is it's a transcription factor. Normally, it's degraded through the uh, ubiquitin pathway, the von Hippel-Lindau pathway. Uh, but for that pathway to ensue, to degrade HIF-1 during times of anoxia, a proline, several proline residues in HIF-1 need to be hydroxylated. And the hydroxylation of that, of that protein is catalyzed by an enzyme called proline hydroxylase. And I told you that these proline hydroxylases are kind of a, a part of a larger family of enzymes, which utilize alpha-ketoglutarate as a co-substrate. And I told you that during the process of HIF-1-alpha hydroxylation, the substrate alpha-ketoglutarate is oxidized, and that's accompanied with the generation of succinate as a product. So <clears throat> now here's the way it goes. If you get mutations in SDH and fumarase, you get an increase because of the mutations, the enzymes aren't functional, and the accumulation of succinate and or fumarate. Both those metabolites will inhibit the, inhibit the enzymatic activity of the pyruvate hydroxylase. And that means that you won't get a specific elimination of the HIF-1-alpha. Because the HIF-1-alpha, the enzyme that carries out that reaction, the proline hydroxylase, also known as PHD, is inhibited by increasing levels of succinate and fumarate. So if that reaction doesn't occur, then uh, HIF-1-alpha doesn't get hydroxylated and it doesn't bind to the factors necessary for proteasomal degradation. That means that HIF-1-alpha can then go on to induce the expression of its target genes, the chromatin. And those are genes responsible for pathways like glycolysis, and systems like angiogenesis and cell proliferation, all of which are proto-oncogenic. And that all came from papers. Uh, one major paper was published in Active Biochem Biophys Sinica was back in 2012 and 2013. I got some of that information from those papers. Now, <clears throat> the interactions, then I started telling you about the third enzyme in glycolysis. It's actually the last Frank enzyme, and that's pyruvate kinase particular form of it, PKM2, I told you, that mutations in that can also lead to a disruption of the last phase of glycolysis leading to pyruvate. So when that happens, and, that, and also that enzyme can be inhibited by various receptors, such as the growth factor receptor, high concentrations of glucose will inhibit uh, pyruvate kinase because that means there's way too much glucose, you don't want to be oxidizing it in that pathway. And so, and also high concentration of reactive oxygen. Likewise, receptor tyrosine kinases, many of them will inhibit the uh, pyruvate kinase. Now, when that happens, you're going to get a flux of the glucose that otherwise would normally go through the glycolytic pathway 
to the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway, entering either as glucose 6-phosphate or as fructose 6-phosphate. Now, when that occurs, and probably also some of it at the level of PEP and erythrose and glycerolide-3-phosphate. Uh, so when that happens, depending on transaldolase, transketolase activities. But when you have the normal enzymes of the OPP, you're going to get the biosynthesis of ribose 5-phosphate, which is important for nucleotide biosynthesis. And you're also getting a lot of NADPH. So that NADPH and the nucleotides are then going to be useful for proliferating tumor, right? Because you need to have DNA replication. You need to have a lot of transcription. So you need a lot of ribonucleic acids as well for RNA, ribosomal RNA in particular, high levels of it, but also, of course, tRNA and mRNA. Uh, and the NADPH is necessary for all those biosynthetic pathways that are uh, biosynthetic. So reductive biosynthesis is the name of the game, and the NADPH produced in the oxidative pentose phosphate pathway is going to provide that. So corruption anywhere in glycolysis is going to feed back up to that glucose 6-phosphate, fructose 6-phosphate. It's going to lead to an OPP stimulation. And then, as I just said, it's going to fuel tumorigenesis. Now, PKM1 enhances the transcription of proto-onc genes in multiple cancers. That's right. So the tetramer pyruvate kinase isoform, you're going to get a pyruvate kinase isoform M2, and it's going to form a tetramer. And the conversion of PEP to pyruvate uh, by, is normally done by transferring uh, the, the PEP to ATP, ADP, right? Phosphate to ADP. That's what the pyruvate kinase reaction does. So when you get PKM2 localized to the nucleus, it'll correlate with tumor cell proliferation. So rather than getting the normal tetramer enzyme going through the glycolytic flux, you get a dimer PKM2, which rather than remaining cytosolic, being a good pyruvate kinase enzyme, it actually is translocated to the nucleus of that cell. And what it does is enhance tumor proliferation. So the dimer PKM activates transcription of a protein called MEK5, M-E-K-5, and it's done so by phosphorylating the STAT3 at a particular tyrosine residue. It's actually tyrosine 705. So that uses phosphonylpyruvate as a phosphoryl donor with ADP as a competitive inhibitor of the kinase activity, okay? So now you're using PEP in the nucleus rather than making ATP. You're actually now carrying out a transcriptional activation pathway. So there's a moonlighting uh, activity of the pyruvate kinase M2. And basically, the moonlighting activity is going to be as a protein kinase, okay? So tumor development associates with this expression of PKM2, where in tumor cells, PKM2 forms the dimer, appears to be catalytically inactive for the conversion of PEP to pyruvate, okay? So glycolysis is shut down. That last enzyme pathway uh, reaction is. However, inactive PKM2 provides growth advantage for tumor progression, as it helps to channel that carbon from glycolytic intermediates to the biosynthesis, especially the synthesis of nucleic acids, lipids, because you're going to be running, running components of the GCA cycle, uh, and proteins. And that meets the demands for the tumor cell proliferation. All of that involves oxidative pentose phosphate upgrades. You make more ribose 5-phosphate and you make more NADPH. That's all reductive biosynthesis. You need a lot of NADPH, for example, to make fatty acids and cholesterol. So the STAT3 that I mentioned to you is the only transcriptional factor among the selected targets that interacts directly with PKM2. 
and that induces transcription of the MEK5. MEK5 turns on the ERK or ERK5, and that induces cell proliferation towards tumorigenesis. So stresses and mitogens can trigger the MEK23, as can the PKM. The MEK23 then phosphorylates MEK5, MEK5 phosphorylates ERK5. Uh, CDK1 can also phosphorylate ERK5. These are all proto-oncogenic events. Um, ultimately, then ERK5, the ultimate transducer of the tumorigenesis, will act as a transcriptional regulator, turning on a whole host of enzymes and transcription factors that are going to be useful to uh, the activation of oncogenesis, such as CFOS, CMIC, SAP1, the RB, FOXO3, NF-kappa-B, STAT3-CREB, and CREL, and also CFOS, if I haven't mentioned it. ERK5 is going to turn on kinases, the SGK, PAC7, the FAC, P90-RISC, and the AKT, GSK3-beta we've talked about. Cyclins and CDKs are going to be turned on, cyclin A, D, E, P27 and P21 are going to be turned on for cell cycle regulation. And of course, cytokines are also going to be turned on by ERK5, interleukin 1 alpha, interleukin 1 beta, interleukin 6, 8, VEGF, which is involved in angiogenesis, and FGF2, which is associated with um, the production of uh, fibrocytes, which is also a major factor in early stages of oncogenesis in many cellular beds. Okay, so again, this PKM2 then is going to be working um, by phosphorylating histone 3. When you phosphorylate histone 3 at chromatin at a particular promoter region in association with a couple of other proteins called HDAC3, K9, and T11, the phosphorylation is going to be induced on H3 by PKM2 it's going to kick off the deacetylase, so you maintain the acetylation state of the chromatin. And then you're going to acetylate, actually, rather, or there'll be a steady-state acetylation of the K9 protein, steady-state phosphorylation of the T11 protein. And then the histone will also be phosphorylated due to that interaction. And you're going to get then uh, a production of C-MIC transcript. All of that is going to lead directly to oncogenesis, okay? So you get the idea what I'm talking about here. Here's a protein, that this pyruvate kinase, that we think we, you know, we understand what it does, right? Pyruvate kinase is a protein that normally is involved in the last enzyme in glycolysis, right? Almost the last enzyme. It's taking phosphorylopyruvate and turning it into pyruvate. After that reaction, what do we get? Well, we got pyruvate either being converted to lactic acid via the lactate dehydrogenase or being converted to oxalacetic acid via the carboxylase or being converted to acetyl-CoA via the pyruvate dehydrogenase, which is also decarboxylating, right? And that's going to make acetyl-CoA. So those are the normal um, subsequent reactions for pyruvate after the pyruvate kinase, kinase reaction. But none of that's going to happen because the pyruvate kinase enzyme is going to end up in the nucleus. And because it's in the nucleus, it's going to be carrying out this phosphorylation of histone, leading to the production of pro-oncogenic systems, such as the C-MIC chain. Okay? So that's where we are right now. And the reason I'm telling you that, the reason we got there, remember, we're, t we're comparing what's going to be going on with aging to what's going on with oncogenesis. So you see how many players, how many transcription factors and growth factors and enzymes and 
receptor, protein receptors in the plasma membrane or protein receptors in the nucleus turned out, turned into kinases. And then the histone proteins themselves, at least a collection, a constellation of some 10 proteins, I think I just added up there, all being non-modified except for the one pyruvate kinase. Pyruvate kinase existing as a dimer is enough for it to become that transcription factor associated kinase, thus leading to oncogenesis. Right? So you get the idea this is a far more um, complex system than simply talking about, well, you've got P53, you got P21, you don't have a cell cycle check, you get this rampant mitotic division, and you have a mutation here or there, like say in the P53 or in a CMIC gene or some other uh, uh, global transcription factor or kinase system leading to the control of a transcription factor, and then you're on your way to oncogenesis. It's never that straightforward. There are multiple systems that will go along for the ride once you induce one mutation. And what I mean go along for the ride is you have to have the right stoichiometry and association of many other proteins to be carrying out a multifunctional transcriptional disarray, which is going to lead then to a transcriptional pattern uh, onwards to tumorogenesis. So CMIC uh, is associated with glycolysis, okay? So once that protein is made, it's going to turn on a pyruvate, excuse me, a protein kinase 1. That protein kinase 1 is going to block pyruvate dehydrogenase. So there's another way of altering the glycolytic flux. MYC is also going to be involved in enhancing the glute transport system. And it's going to get all the pyruvate, right, because it, you, know, you shut down pyruvate dehydrogenase, to be converted to lactate, right? And then because you're making lactate, again, now you're going to get what's called an anion gap in, that's in the total flux across plasma membrane. And that's another biomarker for tumors, an anion gap. You're making way too much lactic acid in situ in the tumor, in the tumor envi microenvironment, and also in the tumor cells themselves. All right. So again, you're not, you're not going to be able to lead to the reactions that you would normally be able to get. And you're going to be having this massive flux of carbon all being burned only at the level of the early stages of glycolysis, running back through the oxidative pentosphosphate fund, reshuttling C6, C3 intermediates back and forth between the OPP and glycolysis, yielding a little bit of NADH because they're all that 3-phosphate uh, dehydrogenase pathway, but ultimately burning up a lot of carbon and then fueling this system that's going to ultimately be using whatever energy is produced, whatever ATP is produced, to fuel the division for the uh, growing tumor. And then, of course, you get a lot of uh, glucose uptake as well because of the enhancement of the glute transporter which I just told you about is turned on by the CMIC, which you turned on because of that pyruvate kinase uh, entering the nucleus. So, okay, now you're at the point where you understand intermediary metabolism can play a major role in oncogenesis. Now, before I told you that, I bet you didn't know that. Or if you did know about it, you're either an oncologist who knows your biochemistry or you're a biochemist who maybe knows something about oncology. But most physicians... Most practicing clinicians don't think about intermediary metabolism playing a really important functional role in generating tumorigenesis, but that's indeed the case. Now, I want you to walk back and think about this. If you're thinking about aging, which is not tumorigenesis, but as some 
determined, directed senescence or ultimately cell death, I think you can understand that the aging process is a way to get around the possibility of immortalizing cells. And so that means if we understand the immortalization process, that is tumorigenesis, we might be able to understand what targets would be useful for cancer. But if we target cancer and we cause remission of cancer, particularly in older people, they still have aging systems. They still have a senescent system. And I'm going to tell you all about the florid nature of senescent biochemistry and pathophysiology as we continue this arc of lectures. You're going to see that if you prolong the life at a certain stage, as a person is already going through the senescent process in humans, that's usually after uh, any time after puberty, really, but particularly after, say, 55, 60 years old, you're carrying forward an organism that already has a program set of determined uh, biochemical systems and pathologies associated with their physiology which will lead to an ultimate death 5, 10, 20 years later, but no more. So if you correct a cancer by targeting one of the pathways that seems to work, for example, a checkpoint inhibitor, so that would basically, checkpoint inhibitors basically block the uh, programmed cell death of T cells so the T cells can kill uh, the uh, tumor cells, um, then what you're doing, though, is you're not taking into consideration that the system is on its downward trend of senescence. So that means you picked up multiple mutations over the years and epimutations. And we talked about epigenetics as being a fundamental right of each individual system, that your epigenetic profile, your epigenome is unique only to the one individual because it has to do with changes in gene expression that have been delivered, recognized, and recalled in your system and only your system. That's why um, identical twins are not identical, um, even with the same or almost identical environments, nutrition, et cetera, uh, because no, there is no such thing as identity. If you have identity, then that means you don't have two things, you have one thing, right? So there's also always a double aspect or more in terms of the hypostatic nature of uh, living systems. So. Now I want you to think about what are some of the candidate biochemical mechanisms that focus on what are the physiological mechanisms of aging. And you're going to find out that many of the ones we're starting to discuss in that oncogenic foray that I just took you through, just doing a little bit of intermediary metabolism, some of those same systems are going to come up again in aging. And they might even be functioning in very similar ways as those mutations, but with different ending and different termination, different results, different sequelae. Now, why is that? Because the, because the system is a homeostatic environment for self. And when you have a homeostatic environment for self, one individual, all of the interactions with all the network pathways in that system are working hand in hand. And so the mutations that can lead to cancer in one system, say cancer in the liver, are not necessarily transferred to any of the other systems in the body. So while the liver may be going through uh, hepatocellular carcinoma, right, and leading on to uh, death caused by that terrible disease, or pancreatic cancer, or glioblastoma, which I told you ultimately I want to get into because that's another nice fusion 
cancer in the brain versus how the brain degenerates in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, for example, or prefrontal dementia just for old age and for the lack of co cognitive resonance, right? I want you to understand that these diseases are always there. They're at a, as a proto stage and they're not really diseases. They're normal physiology. And the normal phys physiology is maintained in this complex, far from equilibrium, or what I call disequilibrium, um, dynamic flux. And that dynamic flux ultimately leads to the death of the organism, but at the same time maintaining its integrity almost up to the end. And alterations in that, where you get chronic illnesses, which can be generated something very easily by by, by bad uh, lifestyle choices like um, lack of exercise and overeating leading to obesity at early stages will corrupt that whole system in multiple ways, in multiple hierarchies, leading to multiple chronic diseases, all of which can contribute to morbidity and can set up for an infection court because of an alteration of the immune response leading to hyperimmunity when you get a common viral um, uh disease come into your system, it could actually kill you because your body is already poised in a hyperimmune response. So we're going to stop there. And I'm just going to say bye for now.